If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Friday, April the 10th. Good Friday, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. My guest today is Robert Service. Robert Service, Bob Service, to his friends, is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a noted Russian historian and political commentator. He's also a fellow of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a prolific author, his most recent publication being Russia and its Islamic World, published by Hoover Institution Press in 2017. Bob, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks, considering uh, everything that's been happening. It's a, it's a fantastic day in in, uh, in springtime UK, but of course, uh, pretty grim news on the hospital front. It is. So before we get into the grim news on the hospital front, I think, Bob, you and I should talk a little bit about kind of the comedic undertones of this conversation. Uh, we're chatting to each other via Skype. I'm in Palo Alto, California. You are in the UK. And normally you're my neighbor uh, at this time of the year or close to this That's time right. of the year. You and your lovely wife come to California. And mm. uh, I was joking with you off camera that you are the equivalent to me of the swallows at Capistrano. <laughs> I know I know it's summertime when I see the services here at, uh, at Stanford. But uh, I want to congratulate you because you and your wife discovered California long before Harry and Meghan. You were Sussex. <laughs> You were Sussex cool before the Sussex came along. Yeah, we're we're plebeians. We're just ordinary citizens. We're not royal, and <laughs> we got in there um, a long way before the royals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you you might be able to appreciate. You like California. You might be able to appreciate their desire to come here. Just I, sure, I, really from a from a weather standpoint, if anything else. I sure do. We've got a <laughs> we've got a very good day today, but we don't usually have a very good day. Nothing like California. <laughs> yeah, well, if there's any consolation, you haven't missed much here in March and April. It is uh, overcast today. It's dreary. It's going to hit the 70s Fahrenheit maybe next week. So we're still away from summer. So hang in there. We hope to get you back here soon. Uh, we're going to get into Russia in this podcast, Bob. But first, I'd like a few thoughts on what is going on uh, in the UK. Uh, I find it to be a very curious time. Uh, there is the still looming question of Brexit and how that is resolved. Uh, your prime minister is uh, in the hospital, though it appears that his health is uh, improved. Um, so, so good for Mr. Johnson. Uh, you had the queen take to the airwaves last mm. Sunday, only five minute speech, but a very effective speech, I thought, in which she tried to rally her subjects and also invoke the idea of British greatness, reminding them that she has been in the business of broadcasting since 1940. And uh, it's an interesting year in general in, in Great Britain, Bob. Um, the 80th anniversary of Dunkirk approaches next month. This fall will be the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. On the one hand, it would be a very good time for her to remind her subjects about this thing called British greatness. But on the other hand, Bob, 80 years ago, and a declining portion of that population can remember the war, will mm -hmm. have felt the war. How, how effective of a rallying force do you think she is? Well, I don't think one should underestimate her. Uh, you'll find very few people who feel bad about uh, the monarchy. Uh, I'm myself, I'm not a monarchist. So uh, I'm saying this uh, from that point of view that um, 
she gave a very, very effective speech on uh, Sunday night. Um, it's only the fourth such speech she's given since she came to reign over us. Mm -hmm. uh, so that gives you some, um, some feeling for how, how bad things are with the COVID virus over here, um, with us all being locked down and uh, stuck in the house or in the garden all day, if we're lucky enough to have a garden. So I think she appreciates um, how difficult things are for the country at the moment. Um, yeah, I think she, she is one of the few unifying figures in the whole of the country uh, because the government is far from um, universally liked by society. So somebody has to do it, and she's right. done it, yeah. When things return to normal in Great Britain, when Boris Johnson is healthy, when politics resume, uh, what is the normal going to look like in Britain? And I'm thinking in particular of Brexit and the transition moving forward. Oh, that's a really good question, Bill. Um, I think the, th the thing that's very important to take account of is that Brexit hasn't been mentioned for about a month. Uh, I noted it yesterday on the lunchtime news that finally people were saying, well, what's going to happen at the end of the year? We've still got a schedule to leave Europe at the end of the year. Are we really going to do that now? No one really knows. Uh, the whole focus has been on the, uh, the virus, just as the whole focus before that was on Brexit. And I think the country's political elite is in shell shock. It, it, it hasn't had a chance to think about what it's going to do at the end of the year. And the law says that we do have to leave at the end of the year. So they're going to have to do something. Right. Very good. And then uh, moving beyond Brexit, Bob, let's talk about the question of European leadership, because uh, in addition to Boris Johnson's health, if you look over on the continent, I'm curious as to who leads on the continent these days. You would say Merkel, but she's a lame duck. She's out of office soon. Yeah. So who is going to take charge on, on the other side? Well, I, usually it's the Germans. Right. Uh, but they have to be very discreet about it. Uh, they don't have to throw their weight around. Uh, there's too much history there uh, for Italians and Greeks to feel good about the Germans. Um, so, and usually Merkel has done this. But as you say, Merkel is on her way out. Right. And there hasn't been a, a single unifying figure to emerge as yet, as far as I can see. Um, at a time when they have enormous economic problems to resolve among the uh, among the various countries. So I think the European Union is in a mess. It was in a mess even before the Brits decided to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 the, the 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 British debate about leaving disguised the fact that the European Union was in a mess. So it's a very sorry state of affairs. And this, of course, reflects on what we're going to talk about in relation to Putin. Putin is the only happy man on the European continent. He's the only happy guy uh, because a disintegrating Europe is, is exactly what Russia has been striving after. 
Okay, I think we can agree that the world is turned upside down when we put Russia and happiness in the same sentence. <laughs> not jovial people by nature, are they, Bob? <laughs> no, I think people in the Kremlin tend to be pretty yeah. grim. Okay, let's talk about him. Uh, the riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma that is one Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Uh, pardon my feeble attempt at Russianizing that, but Vladimir uh, Mr. Putin um, has been a busy man of late, uh, uh, and he has been very busy in particular on the oil front. Uh, now, there was news yesterday, Bob. President Trump apparently held a conference call with Putin and uh, Saudi's King Salman to discuss a resolution of their oil price war. Yeah. Uh, reportedly, um, the OPEC alliance, the OPEC plus alliance, I should say, that includes the Saudis and the Russians, uh, Bob, they tentatively agreed to cut production by a combined 10 million barrels a day. Yeah. Uh, this comes after a month-long price war between the two countries. Moving forward, Russia uh, will be producing about 8.5 million barrels of oil a day, it looks like. Here's the question, Bob. What was Putin up to? Why did he start this? I, I think the, the starting point was that Putin was in a real jam. He, he has had two appalling years in the economy. and uh, he just couldn't find a way to agree uh, anything with the Saudis. He he just needs those revenues from exports, and he 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 will export cheaply rather than um, wait for the Saudis to come over to some kind of agreement, which seems, as you say, seems to have started to happen in the last day or two. But if you recall, back in 2018. Putin had street demonstrations against him because he extended the pension age uh, for uh, ordinary Russians. And people who weren't yet uh, out on a pension uh, went on uh, uh, demonstrations, and so did the pensioners themselves. There was an enormous amount of uh, opposition to him. Now, he did that because his economy was in crisis. So when this oil, when this oil uh, price problem arose at the end of last year, he wasn't in a position to um, say that he was prepared to forego um, revenues from exports because his minister of finance was telling him, you must get the maximum in to the, to the vaults for us. Can you explain why the Russian economy was in a, a state of crisis? Well, the, the Russian economy, I mean, Putin was the luckiest Russian leader uh, there's ever been in, in the, the last two centuries because he inherited a, a rising oil price. And basically, a monkey could have done well in running Russia. Uh, it happened to be Vladimir uh, Putin, because unlike, say, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who had a falling uh, oil price uh, at the time he intended to make his big perestroika reforms, Putin had the opposite. He had a rising oil price. So he had 20 years in which to diversify the Russian economy. And he spent 20 years doing exactly the opposite, just keeping things steady as they were, looking after the ruling group 
and its finances. And by that, I, mean, I don't just mean the politicians, but the big business operatives, some of whom came out of the KGB with him. Uh, and he's just frittered away two decades of opportunity. So now the chickens are coming home to roost. And um, Russians still regard him with a, a great deal of favor. They haven't really worked it out that actually he's been a very poor, ineffective leader. Bob, in an, in an, alternate, universe where, in an alternate universe where Putin stepped aside, uh, how would a reformer, let's call this a successor reformer, how would he or she diversify the Russian economy? Well, it would be a very difficult task because the advantage that Putin had was that he was a strong man from the security apparatus. So he could, he could then have attempted a modernization project that would be much more difficult for a, a more democratically uh, inclined leader to uh, pull off. Behind your question, there is all of the problem of um, what would the ruling group do if, yes. if, a, if a new Gorbachev came along? What would they do to him? I don't think he would last very long because this ruling group has got itself into power. It's building palaces for each of them. It's um, uh, sending its kids abroad to get educated. Um, most of them are billionaires. Uh, they're not going to give up power uh, very easily. They're not going to look kindly on reform, I'm afraid. So I think whoever takes over is likely to be, if anything, worse than Putin. Uh, the phrase in the West that you see often is the word oligarch, um, an oligarchy in Russia. Uh, is this an apt description? And if so, how does a Russian oligarch operate? Does he, he profits mildly from whatever his business is, energy, minerals, what have you? And then does he just kick a share to the Russian government? How does... How does he play the game? Yeah, he kicks a share to the Russian government. That's one, one of the things that Putin was successful with. He said to the oligarchs who existed at the time he took over in 2000, you can keep your money, you can keep your companies, but you mustn't interfere in politics. And the ones who did, Berezovsky, Boris Berezovsky, and Vladimir Gusinsky, and then Mikhail Kharkovsky, the ones who said, no, we want it the way it was in the 1990s, they, they landed up abroad or they landed up in prison. Uh, and uh, he, he, he then tamed the oligarchs. It doesn't mean that he altered the, the economic system, except that there was state control over the natural resources of of Russia, which en enabled the Ministry of Finance to get all of the revenues that paid for the welfare benefits that mm. Putin has recently had to start reducing because he didn't diversify the economy. He, di he didn't actually bring about very much change. Now, Bob, the question that uh, I think we'd all love to know the answer to, but we probably don't and maybe never will, when money gets kicked to the Russian government, how much money ends up in the pockets of one Vladimir Putin? Well, 
You're not a Swiss uh, banker, so I don't think you know the answer, but there's this question of just how much money he has stashed away. Well, I think he's got billions stashed away. The The figure that's usually banded around is 40 to 50 billion. And he does it through intermediaries who, who put the money offshore on his uh, behalf. Uh, he's a very rich man. And this comes back to what you were talking about earlier, Bill. Can he afford to step down? Mm-hmm. Uh, can he trust his successors? Let's say he anoints his successor. He he gets a friendly protege to take on the presidency after him. Say he wants to step down at age right. uh, seventy-two, mm-hmm. uh, which he could do in twenty twenty-four. Can he trust that man or woman to treat him well? and not to use him as some sort of scapegoat for the poor conditions that Russians will by then possibly be living right. under. Right. And, and so he might want to just stay on and on and on and, and, and um, reign forever like Queen Elizabeth II in our country. So that leader, Bob, <laughs> to, to turn on Putin uh, would have to make an intellectual argument to the people of Russia that this man was bad, this man was corrupt, and he has made your life miserable. Uh, but the question, Bob, is how do the Russian people feel about Putin right now? And uh, let's don't trot out opinion polls, because I imagine opinion polls are Russian are kind of the same as election results. He's probably loved according to opinion polls. But your sense, though, as to how the Russians feel about Putin, because he has been a presence in this country for a long time now. Yeah, I think he is pretty popular. I think the opinion polls exaggerate the popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but Russians are not content with their conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opinion polls, when they get away from the Putin question to the question of uh, social justice, mm-hmm. fairness in the society, uh, Russians are pretty annoyed with the way things have gone in the last two decades so i think he i think he uh i think russians regard him with respect they do actually think that he's put russia back in the first rank of the world's powers they do they do think that i think that is um something that they really do think but but they're not a a happy quiescent People. One thing Russians do do, a bit like the French, when they get unhappy, they do take to the streets, and and it could happen again. Um, but what what would be Bob? What would be the flashpoint for that? Would it be running out of food? Would it be running out of uh, electricity or oil? What what would trigger the Russians to actually want to go out and you know take a lot of courage to go out in the streets because they you know this is a yeah. very a society where people are closely watched. And I imagine if you protested against Mr. Putin, you'd pay a very heavy price. Well, when the pension crisis happened two, year, uh, two years ago, then the government was sensible. It made concessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't beat up the demonstrations mm-hmm. uh, as it had done in, in previous years. So, so long as the government behaves and is seen to behave, with a, a degree of gentleness, mm-hmm. um, 
then things can probably stay the way they are uh, at the moment. But I think one of the things about authoritarian administrations is that by being so heavy on the population, they run the risk that they're cut off from the channels of communication that alert them to what's coming next. And they get surprised. And so I think when Putin goes to bed at night, he, he, he doesn't go to bed thinking, well, now I got all of that settled. Now I can um, sleep peacefully. I think like all Russian leaders, even the most totalitarian of them, he goes to bed thinking, let's hope, let's hope it's quiet tomorrow. Let's hope it's quiet Mm-hmm. Uh, next week, because because he can't totally trust his people. Right. Uh, maybe like also many a, a dictator, Bob, he feels that to some extent he's immortal. That he that he's in good health. He rides around on his his horse without his shirt on. He plays hockey. Uh, maybe he feels he could just stay as long as he can. Do you think he has a plan B in effect? If he something were to happen to him tomorrow, if he were incapacitated, if he if he were to drop dead. Is there a succession plan in effect? Has he already groomed somebody to take over, or would just the Russian government have to figure this out? That's a that's a really good and important question that you ask there. Um, I think he thinks from a personal point of view, and a lot of what he does is conditioned by what's what's in it for him. He thinks. Um, if he sets out what's going to happen next, then that will be just the prelude to him stepping down from power. Um, and like most authoritarian rulers, he keeps his his rivals guessing about what his intentions are. If you look at what he's just done in the last couple of months, he's got rid of his long-standing protege. Uh, Premier Medvedev, and replaced him with someone who was barely known to the public. In fact, he's barely known even to this day, Mishustin, who no one had ever heard of except inside the tax agency that he he ran. He has no experience of running um, uh, an open government uh, ministry. Uh, uh, Putin is is promoting into office people who are bound to be compliant with him, people he can he can boss around and can assume will not plot against him. So he's going out of his way to avoid making clear who's going to take over after him. Right. All right. Well, Bob, we've established that he wants to retire. He has the funds to live a comfortable retirement. Uh, but it appears he does not want to go away. And how do we know this? Because in mid-March, Russian's constitutional court issued a 52-page ruling. This is just an incredibly thick, syrupy, uh, complicated legal ruling. They were dancing around a problem. And that ruling said, in effect, Bob, that if Putin wants to run for election in 2024, he can do so free of term limits. Uh, the Russian constitution says a president can serve only two six-year terms. He has to step aside. Putin's second... Um, the second six-year term expires in 2024. But the court said apparently they basically pushed the Putin odometer back to zero, reset it to zero, and away he can go. This was interesting, Bob, in this regard. First of all, the same court ruled in 1998 the term limits did apply to Yeltsin. 
that he could not run for a third term in 2000. That's but wrong. apparently Putin is free to seek a third term if he so wants. Uh, and you mentioned the age factor. Putin was born in 1952, Bob. He'll be 72 years old come 2024. He would be 84 years old yeah. in 2036. Uh, it's a very simple question. Why does this man want to stay in power? And you're going to tell me he likes the job and it's good to be the king. But how long does he want to keep doing this? Yeah, it, it must be a taxing job. You're, uh, you're right, Bill. It's a, an intriguing question for us to ask. Mm -hmm. I don't think he asks it as often himself about himself because I think he's worried about what will happen to him when he steps down. Mm -hmm. And he's got every reason to worry because one thing that you do get some popularity from if you step down as a... a um, uh, if you take over from an authoritarian ruler, is that if you say to the people, look, I always thought this man was a wrong un. I always thought there was something um, dubious about him. Uh, and now that, now that I opened the books, I can tell you what the truth was. And from that, you know, looking back in Russian history, um, Gorbachev got a lot of... Um, Popularity from that in 1985, um, Khrushchev did in in the uh, mid 1950s when he exposed the crimes of uh, Stalin. Um, it's a risky it's a risky prospect for Putin to step down. And the other thing is, Bill, that has to be taken into account is that Putin really feels that he has settled Russia into a desirable groove mm. in, the, in the broader world, but also at home. It's stable now. It's, it's a, it's, it has a, 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 a politics that has a pre predictable way of, of running things. Mm. Um, he thinks that he alone uh, is the guarantor of stability. And um, I think he's started to believe his own publicity. Let's, uh, Bob, let's talk about options ahead for, for Mr. Putin, um, one of which is geographical expansion, geographical conquest. Uh, March very quietly marked the six-year anniversary of Crimea, uh, something yeah. that got overlooked by COVID-19 in general. Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. Do you think that Putin has geographical aspirations? Do you think he looks at the Baltics and covets that? Mm. Uh, where else could he expand Russia's borders if he want, if he so chose? Um, you're absolutely right to bring this up, actually, uh, Bill. Uh, back in December, he met uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine in Paris and um, all they could agree on was the need for further talks and uh, an exchange of prisoners of war from uh, eastern Ukraine. When he got back to Moscow, he gave a couple of speeches in which he said that, um, that, that the Russians and the Ukrainians were essentially one people. So he, he completely refused to accept that the Ukrainians had the right to a separate sense of uh, nationhood. And this caused enormous offence and concern 
in Ukraine as it was intended to do. So he is constantly pushing at the gate of Ukrainian uh, security. And not everything that happened last year was um, helpful to the Ukrainian cause of independence. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the affair to do with the military supplies to Ukraine uh, from Washington made a lot of Ukrainians feel that they they didn't have as many friends in the world as they thought they had had in previous years. That seems to have quietened down now, but the edginess in Ukraine is definitely greater now than it was, say, in 2017. Okay. Uh, let's talk about his role in Europe in the next, let's say, year ahead of us. Let's suppose he looks at Western Europe and he sees, and he's not intimidated by Boris Johnson. He is not intimidated by Monsieur Macron. He is not intimidated by the next German leader. What could Putin do to exert influence over Western Europe other than obviously turning off natural gas? What what sort of options does he have, Bob? Well, um, of course, he would be uh, doing himself a disfavor if he turned off the gas because he wouldn't get the revenues from the gas. Right. Um, but he can threaten that. He's done that in regard to Belarus and uh, Ukraine. Um, what he can do is do what he's done in successive elections, which is to back the parties that are most antagonistic to the European Union. And uh, he did this in the British referendum. Uh, he did it in the French presidential election. He backed uh, Marie Le, Le, uh, Le Pen, um, gave her money. Um, he, 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 can, he can quite cheaply um, make a lot of havoc in European politics. And what about head games? For example, Putin seems to love to send uh, Russian warships uh, through the English Channel. He loves to send <laughs> Russian aircraft close to or into British yeah. airspace. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure why he does this other than to show that he can do it and perhaps to rattle the saber back home and remind people that we have great military technology. But what does Putin get out of just playing these games with, with, with Western European nations? Yeah, well, I think, Bill, one of the answers to this is that, that Putin knows that bad as conditions are for most Russians at the moment, um, with the recession that's going on, uh, there's, there's kudos to be obtained from presenting Russia as a great power in the world. And these sort of military menacing games that he allows the Air Force to play uh, and the Navy to play in the English Channel and around uh, the United Kingdom, they're all part of this. Right. Uh, he's made an absolutely ginormous strategic error in his geopolitics. He's chosen China as a geostrategic partner. 
to the exclusion of the United States. So he's chosen the politics of confrontation with America and the politics of embrace with China. If he'd been a a cleverer politician, he would have said, you know, there's a lot of trouble going on between America and China at the moment. Why don't I just play them off against each other and make them decide that I'm the most desirable chum, pal, friend, ally uh, in the world. Instead of that, he's gone into the Chinese embrace and he has an economy that is massively inferior to China's, which means that China has really all of the playing cards in the game that um, Putin is playing with China. It's um, in the long term. It's a it's a terrible decision from a, a, a purely practical point of view. Uh, he's not the, he's not the cleverest politician in the world. All right, Bob. I'm going to give you a chance to tap into your uh, very fine book, Russia and its Islamic World. Uh, in this regard, we mentioned earlier uh, Putin's dealings with the Saudi government. Uh, what does the future hold for Russia and Syria with Mr. Assad? Well, when uh, when all of this finishes, and it, whatever finishes in the Middle East, nothing ever finishes in the Middle East. Right. Uh, the Russians are not going to be able are not going to be able to uh, accomplish the economic reconstruction right. uh, of Syria. So right. what are they going to do? Um, they're, they're a military. They are a military power. In that he, has part a, he has a naval base in Syria now, right? And they have a naval base uh, and they have intelligence gathering facilities in Syria. Uh, Syria is their client power. Um, but they haven't solved the problem of relations with Turkey. Um, what are they going to do uh, about Iraq? They, they've made for themselves... Um, problems in the long term that um, they haven't yet shown any ability to resolve. So I, I, I think that uh, I think that Putin has bitten off more than Russia can actually comfortably chew. Okay, let's now shift to uh, let's now shift here to the United States, Bob, and Putin's interest in American affairs. Um, Simple question, which which is he more interested in at the moment, uh, destroying the fracking industry in the United States or thoroughly messing up the American presidential election? Well, hmm, I, I don't know. He'll certainly try to interfere in the American presidential election. Yeah. And actually, let's talk about that for a second, Bob. What was his motivation in 2016? We're assuming Russia did interfered, took out Facebook ads. Um, I don't know if he was playing favorites or what, but what drove Putin to want to engage in that election? Just Was it, again, just to show that he could do it? But what? why does he want to be a mischief maker? Well, um, Hillary Clinton certainly had an anti-Putin agenda. Mm-hmm. And so in that, in that respect, it was pretty obvious that he was going to do everything he could to un- undermine he, Hillary Clinton. He met with, met with her and just didn't like her, right? 
Yeah, and she'd said things at the time he was elected in 2012 about how anti-democratic the whole election system was in Russia. So he took enormous offence at her when she was Secretary of State. So, you know, the two of them had history. He did not like the reset button is what you're telling me. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Um, so, I, I mean, I thought, I think that when she then stood as a candidate, he really thought, you know, I'll, I'll do everything I can to undermine her. I don't think, though, I personally don't think that she lost that election because of Vladimir Putin. I think she lost that election because of Hillary Clinton. What do, you, what do you make of his relationship with Trump? I, uh, you know, this is a question I should have asked you at the beginning of the podcast, Bob, but um, I'm, I'd love to go to MI6 or the CIA and just pull out their Putin biography and read what they say about the man, how they interpret him. Uh, but when he looks at Trump, you know, you understand Putin better than most people. What do you think Putin sees when he looks at Trump? It's, uh, it's an intriguing question that... Um, I think he thinks of Trump as having uh, policies that he he can go along with. Uh, I think Trump's wish to withdraw American power, uh, active American power from parts of the uh, Middle East is something that Putin thinks, well, that's in the Russian national Interest. So there are a lot of things that Trump has said and done uh, that uh, Putin Putin welcomes, and the two of them seem to get along very well together. Look, I'm not a psychiatrist, but you can look at the two and see a few common threads. There is number one: these are two people very concerned about their image. These are two people who like to just kind of show off a veneer of toughness. Uh, these are two people very interested in money. Uh, these are two people very interested in women. So there are there are some commonalities between the two gentlemen, it seems to be. Yeah, they probably, yeah. And they, we're, we're living in a very peculiar diplomatic period where, you know, when Ronald Reagan went to meet Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the contents of what they said to each other were... Um, were not made public always. Uh, transcripts um, were not um, circulated until years later. But the broad flow of the conversation and the and the topics that they discussed and the decisions that they took in the late eighties were known at the time and were publicised and were. Um, delivered to the press and the media, and we all knew about them as ordinary citizens. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore. And uh, we don't have that degree of transparency uh, that we should have. So the Trump-Putin relationship is 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 really uh, a mystery. Uh, and uh, it doesn't look as if it's going to be cleared up soon. But what is clear is that it's, it's a comfortable relationship as far as Putin is concerned. Mm-hmm. Bob, I did a, I had a conversation with Victor Davis Hanson the other day. Oh, uh, yeah. Your, your colleague, over, historian. 
He wrote a book about World War II, and World War II is an interesting study in production and just power at the end of the day, just the United States' ability to produce on a mass scale, the Russians' ability to produce on a mass scale, and just overwhelming your enemy. But it's also a tale of leadership, Bob. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt striking up a partnership, Stalin later being included to form a big three. And I asked Victor this question, if Donald Trump looked around the world and wanted to create a big three or wanted to strike up a partnership, a, a working group, if you will, during the time of pandemic, who are his friends? Uh, and I think it's an interesting question because of um, our problems with Xi Jinping right now in China. Uh, you cannot trust Putin, Boris Johnson's health, the transition in Europe. Um, but I'd like to throw this question your way in terms of Putin and Russia. Who are Vladimir Putin's friends around the globe? If he were to sit down and 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 you know and want to have a working group, is it was it is it an Assad? Is it Venezuela? And if so. Are there really any healthy countries that Putin can can work with and form partnerships with? Because Venezuela and Syria are two very sick regimes. Yeah, so it's a really good point, Bill. Um, uh, since he came back to the presidency in 2012, uh, he sought out allies around the world, uh, all but um, all but. Uh, the Chinese ally is in trouble. Uh, Syria, Venezuela being um, cases in point, and the and, and the one the the one ally that is uh, not in trouble is China, but 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 that ally has pretensions to actual. Russian territory. I mean, the Chinese every so often say, "You took, you took a lot of territory from us in the middle of the 19th century. That's really Chinese territory." And the Russians are worried about this. Um, they're economically worried about Siberia because uh, so many Chinese settlers, uh, right. traders, are going over there now. And it's it's half empty. Bob, it seems to me the Chinese can do at least two things that Putin cannot. Number one, the Chinese can just give you money if they so choose. And secondly, they can come into your country and build for you. They can help build a canal in Panama. They can build infrastructure around the world. They can build bases in places like Djibouti. And you know, outside of, we mentioned Syria, it looks like Russia with its weak economy and maybe just not a very strong cash flow, it cannot spread its influence the same way China can. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, it doesn't have uh, the finances, and the Chinese don't want to get into to Russia in the way that uh, they they want to get into Africa. Um, Putin in 2014, after the Crimean annexation, Putin s sent emissaries to um, Beijing and Shanghai, looking for. A financial bailout because the, the Russian economy went into recession after the fall of the oil price in the middle of uh, 2014. They came back largely empty-handed because the Chinese don't have an interest in building up Russia again into being an economic and technological rival power. Um, so they're playing a they're playing a very clever game with Russia. Um, yes. Okay. Final question. Final question for you today, Bob. And I'm going to let you go. Um, 
let's assume Boris Johnson recovers his health and he gets back to his job full time. And at some point he and Donald Trump can have a conversation. Either they do it over some medium like this or they actually meet uh, in Washington or in London and they sit down and the conversation comes to Putin. What's your advice about what those two gentlemen should talk about? The British interest lies in uh, standing up to him. Uh, I served in the uh, Litvinenko inquiry in 2016, which had been delayed for 10 years because the British decided that it was better to have Russian finance in the city of London than it was to have an inquiry into the death on London streets right. uh, by a brutal poisoning of uh, a former uh, FSB uh, agent. So the, the British had a sort of an ambivalent attitude to Russia until the Litvinenko in inquiry. Uh, the British really have to make up their mind uh, what they want to do about Russia. And at the moment, the line is that we will not put up with any more nonsense, particularly right. since the Skripal poisoning. And I think that's the only thing that a, a self-respecting country uh, should be doing. So I would say one thing that um, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump could do is say, right, we're not going to put up with any kind of messing around with our elections anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, whichever side we are on, whichever political party we are standing for, this is just not going to be um, allowed anymore. If you, in your, in your interest, want to go on having a good relationship with us. Um, so the British have begun to sort of take this view um, from what I can understand, um, the United States are continuing to send military supplies to uh, Ukraine. I think that's a good policy, um, even though Donald Trump has been pretty gentle in what he says personally about uh, Putin. But there's a sort of ambivalence about American policy that needs to be clarified and hopefully clarified in a in what I would regard as a positive way. I think both countries have um, shilly-shallied uh, in, in the past and need to get their act together in the present. Okay, Bob Service, I think we're going to leave it at that, but I think we can re-engage at some point because it appears that Mr. Putin is not going away anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, you're right there, Bill. <laughs> okay, look, I enjoyed the conversation, and more importantly, I hope you and your lovely wife stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks. Thanks, Bill, and I hope okay. uh, you and all pals and friends uh, in Hoover um, have a safe, healthy, and... Um, fruitful spring and summer and i hope to be over there again soon yes we hope to see you bob because again it's just not summertime in stanford until the services arrive on campus Cheers. <laughs> you've been listening to area 45 a hoover institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the united states in this case the riddle wrapped in a mystery inside enigma that is vladimir putin 
If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Robert Service and his colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handler is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Robert Service is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Robert Service, double O. Is there, is there a number missing there? Just double O? <laughs> you don't want to give yourself an eight or a nine? Anyway, Twitter handle again, at Robert Service. Service, as you'd expect, it's spelled S-E-R-V-I-C-E, at Robert Service, double O. And you can go to Amazon and find his many fine books on the likes of Lenin, Nicholas II, Russian Revolution, The End of the Cold War, and Russia's Journey and Transformation from the 20th and 21st Century. I'll just warn you, he's not the only Robert Service on Amazon, but he's the only one, as far as I know, writing about Russian history. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care, stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.